This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin McElvoy, author of the novels A Waltz, The Fifth Station, Little Peg, and Hyssop, and a short story collection called The Complete History of New Mexico. He also teaches creative writing at the Warren Wilson College MFA program for writers. His new work is called 57 Octaves Below Middle C, which contains short stories and poetic narratives that both adhere to traditional structure and defy it. The pieces that make up the book contain deep musicality, riddle-like content, and vulnerable characters in the midst of madness, realization, and whimsy. The work itself is like a comprehensive piece of art, and we began the discussion focusing on that. My work is, I think of it as being carved from the human voice, from that particular kind of um, wood that is the human voice, and some of the pieces are carved from a softer kind of wood that gives um, more opportunity to find the nuances of the voice and other voices resist more. And uh, part of the pleasure for me in writing a very voice-driven work is to be um, inside both challenges, the challenge of there being a voice that is so strange and that the the very material of it kind of resists you translating that voice and other voices that uh, uh, more readily welcome your effort to translate what they're offering. I want to hear your description of this book, like if you if you were to describe it to someone because it is so unique and has so many interesting voices and is like hard to define by genre. I guess my description of this book, if I boiled it down, would be um, here is not um, the beautiful dragonfly that um, is so often the kind of thing that you think you wish to welcome into your life as a reader. Um, This is the parasite living inside the gut of the dragonfly that um, is uh, the lovely expected thing. And, um, and it's just possible that if you live inside, um, that gut of the dragonfly long enough, you have a sense of the wonder of this parasite of, uh, this strange creature that you may not have gotten to see so closely, uh, and, um, had so many opportunities to look closely at, to be present to in its odd behaviors. So I, and my work, all of my work, this work is, um, shares in common with everything that I've written that, um, there is an opportunity to hear singing in the work, a singing narrative, a narrative that, um, sings first and then says, Uh, And traditionally, work says something. It begins to articulate pretty fast what it is saying and what is the meaning of what it says. Um, But singing in the world often places second saying. And um, that seems to have been what has uh, been a characteristic of my work 
all my life, it doesn't surprise me because I grew up in um, uh, in a family in which, especially on my father's side, um, oral storytelling was everywhere. And the very reason I'm a writer at all is that I had the opportunity to be exposed to these marvelous oral storytellers who had no idea where they were going, but started singing and um, couldn't stop themselves. So for a listener to keep following along, these are little, you know, vignettes with, with many different voices and many different energies to the story and feelings and themes. Although I did notice many, many themes or ideas or tropes that flowed through. In the beginning, you were saying that you feel like you're carving out this space for these voices. What were the voices of, of, of fiction and what was the voice of Kevin? Yeah, that's a great question always, I think, because um, I think uh, most of us writing uh, fiction believe that from the first passage of the work, we um, may be seated in our own sensibility, but um, the way we know that we're um, on track, that we're writing what we're meant to be writing, is that we are traveling away from ourselves, uh, and um, that the fiction is carrying us um, beyond ourselves. It doesn't mean it uh, doesn't always carry in us some sense of our essential condition, but um, it's moving us beyond that. And that is something that um, I uh, have to always admit I have little conscious understanding of. I will sometimes read a piece that I know uh, was rooted in or had its beginning place in uh, some element, some aspect of my own life um, and won't recognize it <laughs> uh, once the work has found its own shape, its own direction, um, and in, in the case of these pieces, its own chord, its own set of uh, sounds within the sonic force of that small piece. The more that the sound of the work is rhythmic, the more I think of it as a prose poem or as what I would sometimes call a poem prose. Um, a prose poem has in it um, the uh, overwhelming force of prose that is uh, rhythmic. And uh, a poem prose in my own mind um, is a piece of uh, fiction or prose that sounds from the very beginning like a poem uh, that has not been lineated, has not been uh, uh, broken into stanzas, has not been shaped in some of the conscious ways that a poem is, but is first and foremost the kind of a song that is poetry. Um, so I, I actually do see the root of some of my own life in many of these pieces, and um, uh, but uh, just as often, I don't. I don't recognize myself. So, for instance, there are pieces here, there are many pieces in this book that are about madness, and um, some in some cases about a kind of exquisite madness in which um, there is such pleasure and such joy for the speaker that um, the madness verges on a kind of ecstasy. And in other cases, there is a madness that um, is rooted in terror um, or horror 
and is inside the envelope of wonder. And these are aspects of my life, uh, all, all my life. I have um, been fortunate in that um, I've been placed in these kinds of conditions of madness. So I'll give an example. The story Miss Luck um, is a story about uh, migraines. Uh, I have had migraines all my life. I uh, had them, uh, they started at around the age of uh, 10 for me. Uh, and I have gone through horrific phases with migraines uh, almost all my life. Now, as I've gotten past 60, as is the norm for many migraineurs, uh, I have fewer of them. But a migraine places you in the condition of madness that um, is self-revealing in some pretty marvelous ways. And I consider myself very lucky that when I've experienced horror, I've been able to realize, recognize that it exists in the envelope of wonder um, or that deep within that horror is wonder. And when I've experienced wonder, um, as in uh, the case of the piece here called The Story of Their 67th, um, which is um, a person remembering fondly his mother and father. I was very close to my own mother and father, um, in which there is within that wonder, deep within it, um, hidden in it, uh, some horror, which is often, I think, the case um, of uh, a person who has lost uh, lost a mother or father, um, or who realized that within the um, place of their family of origin, uh, they were both inside insiders and outsiders. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin McElvoy, author of 57 Octaves Below Middle Sea. You mentioned those two stories in Madness, and, and there, there are, are other stories that take place like in asylums. Mm. I want to ask you also about, about the humor and the first story. So, for instance, the first story is called Basho, Poet, Diarist, Recluse, Sells Lawnmower, Used But Like New. And it's basically, it's, it starts with uh, a haiku and mm. about this guy who comes to buy a lawnmower from this 17th century Japanese poet. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this story. I didn't know much about Basho. And when I read it, I had the sense that I was missing so much. So mm -hmm. I went back and I did I did some research and then some of the pieces fit together more for me. So I'm mm -hmm. curious. Uh, it's a two part question. But one is, you know, what what was on the face of this story? And then is it OK? That, like, do you expect your reader maybe to come back to a story again and again because there's so much in there? 
Those are great questions. Um, and one of the reasons that the book begins with that piece is um, that it feels like playing fair with the reader to have that piece up front. Um, it announces to the reader, um, you know, the, um, the immediate sense of a first reward for so many readers is what does it mean and how does it hold together? Um, and, um, and if the nature of your work is that it resists the first question, um, what does it mean? Uh, and it by its own nature resists the second uh, question, how does this hold together? Um, uh, if that is, if that's the nature of your work, and if almost all the reading experiences that follow this one um, are similar, then I think it's good to start on that ground where the reader says, um, I don't feel like this story um, is driving itself towards some particular meaning. This feels like a person who, in fact, may be lost in the telling of his lostness. So this is a guy who um, admits that he has uh, placed lawnmowers at the center of his life and the collecting of lawnmowers, and that he has a family, he has friends, he has an occupation, um, but um, he would, if he could, wish to account for the fact that lawnmowers matter tremendously to him. Uh, and um, uh, and what is the source of that for him? Um, well, it's not a, an immediately identifiable external source. Um, it's a sense that this world uh, is odd enough that you might go to buy a lawnmower someday and um, the person who comes to greet you isn't even from your own century. Uh, and, um, and this, again, is, I think, something that's characteristic of much oral storytelling, where um, uh, someone is uh, essentially singing their story because they haven't yet formed it into an articulate whole. You are hearing them sing thinking, you are not hearing them think singing. That is, um, uh, for many people, they start talking before they think about what they are saying. And that is part of the nature of their singing and of their narrative. Others think before they begin singing what they are going to say. Uh, and if you just sort of think about your own friends and associates uh, and you ask yourself, which ones of those are sing thinkers and which ones of those are think singers? Um, it helps to say, um, oh, so when I'm not actually tracking my friend who's trying to tell me about his obsession with uh, lawnmowers, and I'm not quite tracking that, I'm still enjoying it, and it's possible I'm enjoying it that much more because I'm not, quote-unquote, tracking it. One of the things I thought that, um, you know, you were interested in when I read this as a whole, or at least the piece might be interested in, is naming things, um, mm -hmm. meaning you have one where you're talking about the what you measure your foot with when you go to the shoe store and what is that called? What is the name of that thing? And then you have mm -hmm. like in another um, 
story, the luthier's mother's mouth's open openness. You mm-hmm. you you instead of calling the 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 kid the kid, you you say, um, "I was luthier's mother's son's favorite pupil." So you're mm-hmm. kind of going a, a roundabout way to say who he was, but. I'm just wondering about this interest about naming things and and not naming things or naming things in a unique way. Well, the dilemma that is a wonderful dilemma that faces all of us uh, is um, there are things for which we readily have words and um, there are things for which we don't have words. Uh, and um, this second condition, the condition of the inexpressible, um, is a dynamic condition in which we are struggling for the right word for what we have experienced um, and for what we wish we could name as an experience or for what we wish we could um, uh, find words to remember and um, to account for in language what we remember. Um, In my opinion, one of the great gifts of poetry, and I'm uh, an obsessive reader of uh, poetry, uh, is that poetry by its nature often is um, uh, up against the issue of what is there that we experience the smallest forms of experience and the biggest, most dramatic ones, um, for which there are no words. Oh, that is what I will um, address in my poetry, um, is that not the thing for which there are readily words. Uh, and, um, And some of us who are prose writers, very influenced by poetry, um, and as I said, by orality, are interested first and foremost in um, the inexpressible and the effort, including even the awkward effort in um, our storytelling of a narrator uh, accounting for something that she or he does not yet have words, and in fact, may never have the right words. And so naming uh, does, it appears uh, as a dilemma in many, if not most, of the pieces in this book um, as a kind of natural aspect of uh, the story itself that is there um, being the story of something that resists being expressed. And by the way, humor is often... um, I think at its best, uh, something that occurs not when the speaker can um, readily say what she or he means, um, but um, when the speaker um, is in a kind of state that there there is uh, a failure of language. And what is often inherently funny is um, that you are watching someone fail, and it is giving you pleasure. Uh, Monologuist uh, Louis Black, who's now a rather prominent uh, comedian, Louis Black, every time that he uh, 
uh, talks is in a rage. He's in a rage about what's going on uh, in politics, or he's in a rage about um, something he doesn't understand about human nature. And um, part of what makes us laugh is that his rage has made him inarticulate. And um, we have we join his feeling um, because we can join it tonally. Um, but if you were to actually transcribe any given five minutes of uh, his comedy, you would say, "Huh, this doesn't add up. It it doesn't it doesn't actually even make sense. Uh, it's more a person growling." and roaring um, and raging um, than it is someone who has said, here's what I wish to say. Uh, and so in the instance in which people find um, humor uh, in these pieces, uh, I think some of it, uh, if not most of it, will have to do with um, a speaker human enough to fail at the effort to find the story and in that failure to sing something that has worth and value in its own singing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin McElvoy, author of 57 Octaves Below Middle C. And overall, as a whole, I know something that you, you talk about is, is narrative situation, which is kind of where you're coming from when you mm-hmm. start a story. Do you think a whole book has a narrative situation? It's possible that um, this whole book does have a, a narrative situation. The title of this book is 57 Octaves Below Middle C. Now, um, there is no sound here um, on earth that is 57 octaves below middle C um, that we consciously hear. Um, in fact, this title is taken from uh, a discovery by a Stanford astronomy student that there was a tubular-shaped galaxy um, that um, these astronomers discovered that was actually emitting a sound that was 57 octaves below middle C. Uh, and it feels like the right title for this book because this book is a set of voices. One could say a set of sounds. If um, the sound that a narrative gives off is a sound that um, is not one that is immediately familiar, um, not one that um, is immediately comfortable, um, then one could say that the essence of this book is um, how when you listen to the voices of the people around you, the sounds of the world around you, how are you coming up against the riddles, the koans, the things for which you have no words, but which you know matter in your life? And so I, 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 I do think of the title of this work as a title that, um, that invites the reader to say, how might I value differently what is inexplicable, inexpressible in my life? Uh, and how might my ears 
uh, change. Um, musicians, of course, are always trying to tune and retune their ears. And when we listen to music that we love, we often have a sense that the music itself is giving us a chance to listen uh, differently. Uh, and, um, and perhaps that's true of this book, too. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I can, and thank you for giving me that opportunity because um, I uh, love always to be able to share with uh, anyone my favorites, right? Uh, I think this is just so true of uh, all of us who love literature that we're always hungering for the chance to come to someone and say, you got to listen to this, listen to this. So I'll just read, if I have opportunity here, just it's a, a three stanza poem by John Berryman uh, from the Dream Songs. I'm very influenced by John Berryman. Uh, and I'll just say before I read this uh, poem, which is the 14th of the Dream Songs, um, that this matter that I was talking about, about the chord, if you listen to this poem, uh, you immediately say to yourself, I'm hearing the speaker of the poem. I'm hearing inside that um, the speaker's mother. I'm hearing inside that the speaker's id that he has named Henry. Um, and, um, and I seem to be hearing what might in fact be um, the voice of his generation. So this is 14 from... John Berryman's dream song. Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. After all, the sky flashes, the great sea yearns, we ourselves flash and yearn. And moreover, my mother told me as a boy repeatedly, ever to confess you're bored means you have no inner resources. I conclude now, I have no inner resources because I am heavy bored. Peoples bore me, literature bores me, especially great literature. Henry bores me with his plights and gripes as bad as Achilles, who loves people and valiant art, which bores me. And the tranquil hills and gin look like a drag, and somehow a dog has taken itself and its tail considerably away into mountains or sea or sky, leaving behind me, wag. So that's uh, John Berryman's, uh, that's from John Berryman's The Dream Songs. Mm. Is there anything else you want to say about it or do you feel like you covered it? I love The Dream Songs because uh, they remind us that um, we um, actually live in a dreamlike state. We, we think of ourselves as moving from a conscious state to lying down at night and entering dream. Uh, and um, uh, poets often remind us, storytellers often remind us, no, we actually live in the dreamlike, that um, when our mind drifts uh, during the time that we're doing some quote-unquote uh, real-life task, um, we are uh, already dreaming, uh, that we, when we are really present to someone else um, we are moving out of ourselves into their condition in a way that we more often than not think of as being dreamlike. When we enter the natural world so full of uh, 
the smallest kinds of and the most overwhelming forms of wonder. Um, we feel transported in a way that is the reminder that we live in the dreamlike condition. And um, this poem of Berryman's, which one could say, you know, that poem doesn't hold together real well. It seems to skid into his mother and then to skid into this character, Henry. And it seems like he may actually even be drinking gin at the time he's telling this um, uh, is, um, is someone singing from inside the dreamlike condition. And um, when I uh, begin writing every day, I like to be in particularly that condition. And, um, uh, and when I have finished writing every day, w one of the first difficult things for me is to leave this little hut and, um, uh, and to live in the normal world where I, I definitely have to pay attention to where I'm driving um, and um, what is a task that I need to finish, uh, to undertake, etc. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin McElvoy, author of 57 Octaves Below Middle Sea. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or came out really different than it started. Yeah, I, I'm going to uh, read uh, this very first piece that you mentioned, um, which is Basho poet, diarist, recluse, sells lawnmower, used but like new. That's the title of the work, and the title itself is a haiku. Uh, and, um, uh, and then what follows is uh, an epigraph that is a haiku, uh, and uh, in this piece, every time that the character Basho speaks, his dialogue is a haiku. So, the, so uh, once the story revealed to me, and this was not something I knew in the first draft, that the story itself would be full of haikus. Uh, the haiku form is the form for which Basho was uh, famous. Um, then there was this uh, challenge of uh, having language behave in the way that it behaves in a haiku. There is, for instance, in the Basho form of the haiku, what is called the breaking moment. So the title of this work is actually Basho, poet, diarist, recluse, sells lawnmower, dash, used but like new. That dash would be um, similar to Basho's use of the dash, a moment in which the direction of the work uh, shifts. And um, it either moves farther inward, uh, veers farther outward, uh, or um, gives information that it has withheld. So I'll just read the opening passages of, of this. Uh, um, and thank you again for giving me this opportunity. Basho. Poet, diarist, recluse, sells lawnmower, used but like new. Like new, Karumi. Two-stroke, Kareji design. Make an offering. I had phoned, not sure I needed another lawnmower, but you never do know. And I lived alone and living alone like that. I thought lawnmowers were unchanging truths. 
Like other men, I was drawn to them, seriously drawn. So I had them. Where a car might be parked or chairs and tables and children's outgrown shoes and clothes stored, I had them everywhere, seriously, everywhere. He answered the phone. Basho! I told him I read the thrifty nickel, asked if he still had the karumi, still wanted to sell. Yes, he did. He had. How pleased he was that I read his simple ad, he said, and it would not, quote, disturb, end quote, if I came in the evening when he and his disciples, who had gathered at his hut, his words, hut, disciples, disturb, would demonstrate karumi. It all was intriguing. It was strange but strangely not surprising from the start. A guy in a hut with his own demonstrating disciples. An ad for a karumi. A karumi. So those are the opening passages of that work and the opening passages of this book. Where do you write? I write in a hut that um, is sort of in the woods behind our home here in Asheville. It's about uh, 200 square feet, this uh, little hut. It was a, uh, I think for the previous owner, it was a man cave. It had um, in it his motorcycles that he worked on um, when um, he moved out and we moved in. Um, uh, I uh, started to write here had to do many improvements in order to survive the winters here. Um, had to put in a heater um, and um, had to put in some insulation. But um, it gives me a chance to be in my own closed little space here. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I am so fortunate. I, um, my wife and I, uh, love dancing and we, um, as a hobby, we do ballroom dancing. Uh, we, um, in fact, just yesterday had our newest tango lesson. Uh, and, um, we really, really enjoy, uh, dancing and we, um, have made it now a regular date so that we have our lesson and um, then often in the evening we um, roll up the carpet in our small living room, push the furniture to the walls and practice. And um, it is a great getaway uh, for me, especially as a person who has never danced. Um, my wife is uh, a seasoned, experienced dancer, uh, and I like the vulnerability of, uh, of my own awkwardness, and I appreciate so greatly her patience with me as I do this. Um, but it is a great getaway for me uh, to do that. Uh, and um, I hope that uh, it, it now will be a regular part of my life. It's been, we've been doing it for over three years now. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I, I show it to uh, my wife, Christine Hale, who is a writer, and there are a group of uh, writers 
here in Asheville who let me show them things um, in sections. So for instance, the new novel that I'm working on, I just showed them the first third of this novel and, um, and got to patiently listen to their responses. Uh, and, um, uh, and it uh, is often important to me to bring work to uh, readers who might somehow have special knowledge. So when, for instance, I wrote the book Little Peg, which um, was about the aftermath of uh, Vietnam uh, uh, on the wives, mothers, and daughters, and sisters of Vietnam vets uh, who were experiencing uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome there in those days it, it didn't have that neat designation um, there were nine of them who allowed me to extensively interview them for that book I did over 300 hours of interviews for that book uh, with the wives mothers daughters and sisters of Vietnam vets and as a matter of conscience I brought them each draft of that book for them to test my conscience on it absolutely invaluable to me with that book and life-changing and therefore invaluable to me in my life apart from my life as an artist my my life how have you dealt with rejection uh-huh. um well i've been uh, fortunate in that um i am uh, i a lot of my life was uh, the life of an editor and um uh, I edited the national literary magazine Porta del Sol as both the editor-in-chief and the fiction editor for 27 years. And I got to see from the inside how subjective the process is at its most rigor- rigorous, how subjective it is. And so um, I learned very well how um, uh, when, in my own case, my work is uh, uh, is rejected, uh, that it has been rejected because of a set of subjective causes. Um, And I learned very well in a way that was quite humbling that when my work is accepted, it is uh, accepted in the same, under the same set of subjective conditions. Uh, Someone might have made a mistake in rejecting my work. It is just as likely that someone made a mistake in accepting my work. And um, that oddly causes me delight uh, to know. And what is your favorite word? Ah, well, I think it may be evident from uh, what I've said here uh, that wonder is uh, a word that I return to. Uh, I really believe that um, in um, every moment of uh, being alive as a human Um, We are experiencing wonder. It doesn't mean that there isn't horror inside it, terror inside it. Um, But each breath um, a person takes in, each breath that a person releases um, is the occasion of wonder. I I feel that so strongly as uh, a person, a human now in his 60s, and as an artist who has... uh, given his entire adult life over to um, the contemplation of luminous and dark beauty. ¶¶
You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Kevin McElvoy, author of 57 Octaves Below Middle C, as well as four novels and a short story collection. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.